just before I dive into what Bill had asked me to talk about, when we were singing that song, I was reminded of the incident, I think it's in Two Kings, where Elisha, um, who has this prophetic ministry, um, he has a servant called Gehazi. And one day Gehazi goes outside and notices in, on the mountains around where they are camping, the Arameans have encircled them. And he runs back inside to Elisha and he says, my father, my father, we're surrounded. And Elisha prays and says this, father, open his eyes that he might see that those who are with us are more than those against us. And God opens the eyes of, eyes of Gehazi. And as he looks again at those enemies that surrounded them, he sees the hosts of God's angelic forces surrounding those who are surrounding him. And I just want to say to you prophetically today, when you see things surrounding you, what you don't see is what is surrounding those things that surround you. Heaven's forces, heaven's armies, angelic hosts. Psalm 91 tells us that he'll command his angels concerning us to guard us in all our ways. So just, I'll leave that with you prophetically, just from the Lord. When you feel surrounded, ask God to help you see what surrounds those things that surround you. That's a freebie. You've got to pay for the rest, but that's a freebie. All right. Well, it is always good to be with you. It kind of is probably our second home church for Amanda and I. And um, when I first met Amanda, she was part of Nethley Elim. Um, and so she's often down here, well, she is down here more often than I am once a month just to come and be with her mum. But when Amanda and I travel on the road the other weeks of the month, most other weeks of the month, we have a little routine uh, these days that um, Amanda will, will come and share my Bible reading and pray for us. So we thought we'd do that today. So Amanda's going to come and read the scriptures and then just pray for us before I dive into what I'm going to say. Good morning, church. It's so good to be back home in Llanelli and with mum. And I just want to thank you all. You've been amazing how you love and support my mum. So thank you for that. Um, I'm just going to read uh, Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are always with us. And Father, I just want to thank you for this church, for Bill and Ellen and the pastoral team here and all these amazing people. And thank you for the fruitfulness, Lord, in this town of Llanelli. Thank you, Lord, for the food bank and the friendship group and the nursery, Father, and the kids' club. Thank you, Lord, for all they're doing. And, Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would give them supernatural strength to serve you all the days of their life. And I pray now as Stuart brings your word, you will anoint him, Lord, and that people would have a truth encounter 
of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, darling. So the passage that Amanda read contains what we call the Great Commission. We've kind of entitled it it that as those who've read the scriptures for generations since. And in many ways, it is a reminder to us of what we are about, the purpose of the church. I think of someone like David Livingstone, probably one of the most famous missionaries sent from the shores of the UK way back in the 19th century in the 1800s. He was the first British missionary that really went into Africa. And uh, he once said this, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honour, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? And it was this great commission that impacted many people of David Livingstone's generation, people like Hudson Taylor and later C.T. Studd and great names like that, who became missionaries from these shores here in the United Kingdom to all kinds of parts of the world. C.T. Studd went to India um, and uh, Hudson Taylor went to China and began some dramatic missionary work. What's interesting about some of those people who went out, obviously in days when they didn't catch an aeroplane, they got on a ship and spent months, some of them, sailing to their locations, is that many of them took their belongings in a coffin. And it was the coffin they expected would be used to bury them in the lands God had called them to. Because such was their commitment to the Great Commission that they said, I'm going after what God has told me to do and I don't expect to be back. And often in those days, that was the case. We're blessed. And when we were with you last time, some of the, some missionaries who were working out in the Middle East were here and it was, it was great to hear their story. And we know that missionaries across the world that we support in our healing work get opportunity to furlough and to come home and to to visit us. But in those days, going out and fulfilling the Great Commission was giving your whole life to something. And those stories are inspiring. And I remember in the early years of my ministry, I gobbled them up and read those books about those great men and women of God. Gladys Elwood, another one you know, who was dramatic and impacting. And we think of people like that. But they, they present us with a challenge at the same time that they inspire us. Because sometimes we end up thinking that mission and the great commission of Jesus is all about those heroes, and I think they are heroes, um, who pack up and move away. I was on a Zoom call with one of our Elim missionaries, John McDonough, who he and his wife Rachel, just, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, are serving in Paraguay. They're in the kind of Central African belt, uh, Central American belt. And, and I often talk about people like that as, as the real heroes because I haven't had to leave my homeland of the UK in the way that they have, you know, and I've, my friends and family are still very accessible. But Jesus' final words, and these are amongst the final words of Jesus, are incredibly significant. They're almost an expectation from Jesus that we will pick up the baton, if I can use that metaphor, and we will run on the race that he began to run in the first place. That we pick up the commission, the mission of Jesus and continue it. 
And these words come in the final 40 days of the life of Jesus here on earth before his ascension because we, we flip over the pages of our gospel accounts into Acts chapter 1 and find that in verse 11 Jesus ascends to heaven and uh, he's going to come back the same way he ascended, praise God. That's part of the, the message of the Great Commission. But what Jesus teaches in these final 40 days actually set up those first disciples for the first 40 years of the church, the expansion of the church, this, this commission was compelling. In the first instance, when we read early in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, it's what inspired those disciples who, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, are fearful and hiding away in an upper room until we get to our second chapter of Acts, where the Spirit comes And Jesus says, look, I'm asking you to do this commission work, to take the gospel, but I know that you can't do it without me. So God the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 and empowers them. And these people who were fearful and hiding away in a room suddenly burst onto the streets of Jerusalem. And I want to say to you that that was not an easy thing to do. They were so overwhelmed and empowered by the Spirit that it broke down all of their natural fear barriers because this was Roman-occupied Jerusalem. They would have just been opposed by the Romans, but the Jews had just killed Jesus. (laughs) They weren't anything in favour of the followers of Jesus. But empowered by the Spirit, they hit the streets of Jerusalem. And from this one mountain in Galilee where Jesus gives the Great Commission, he launches the church to the whole world. The Christmas, uh, Christmas, excuse me, the Christian author Ron Luce said that the Great Commission is the great adventure of Christianity. The Great Commission is the great adventure of Christianity. I love history and I've been enjoying listening to a podcast over recent weeks called This Is History, just when I'm driving around and great stories of history. And when we look over history, we know that there were many years, many decades and centuries ago where there were parts of our world that were undiscovered. You know, really it wasn't until um, the the 16th century that parts of America were really discovered and and, and, and what we now know as North America came into being over the next few hundred years. But people would, would get onto ships. We think of the Pilgrim Fathers who got onto the Mayflower and sailed from Plymouth, where these, these guys are from, and headed uh, west to, to America and landed in, in kind of the Carolina area and, and began to settle and spread what they called the great westward expansion across the Americas. And as they did that, so many of these people from these shores and places like Spain and and Holland in those days, they took the faith with them of Jesus Christ and spread the message of Jesus into these new territories. And that was how the gospel got expanded. As people went and built new lives, they didn't do it in exclusion to taking the message of Jesus because it's who they are. It was who they are. They carried that. And I think it's very easy for us to dismiss ourselves from the great commission of Jesus because it seems just too big and too vast. 
But I want to tell you today, one of the problems we face in the UK church, and Bill's illustrated it just a little bit really with his uh, illustration from California there, is that we really don't have a clue what God's doing across the world today. Can I say to you that there are almost 7 billion people alive on planet Earth today, and as much as 3.5 billion people own the name of Jesus Christ as their saviour. In parts of the world today, in South America, in Asia, do you know I was sitting with an Indonesian man who is church planting in Germany two weeks ago. I was in Germany two weeks ago, sitting with an Indonesian man. And I just thought that, you know, the church in Indonesia was experiencing persecution, which it is. But he was telling me that hundreds of thousands of people are coming to faith every month in Indonesia at the moment. And the gospel of Jesus is changing the world. One of the historians who's involved with this podcast is a guy called Tom Holland, not the actor, but the historian. He's written a book called Empires. And Tom Holland says in his book Empires that no movement has changed the face of civilization on this planet more than the church of Jesus Christ. He says, and he's not a believer, but I think he's probably heading in that direction, that the single most significant figure in all of human history is Jesus Christ. The world has changed because of the followers of Jesus Christ. He ascended to heaven in AD 33. But since AD 33, the whole shape of this planet, culturally, socially, in terms of belief, has changed because of one man and his followers. One man and his followers. And that same man, Jesus, God-man, is alive today in his followers at Myrtle House in Llanelli. And the hope of Llanelli and the whole of Carmarthenshire and West Wales and Wales and the United Kingdom lies within that person, Jesus Christ, who lives within us. And Jesus calls us to be like him, someone who seeks the lost. And when you think of a phrase like that, the most significant chapter, I think, in the Bible is Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, three stories to illustrate something important. He tells the first story about a man who has a hundred sheep and one of those sheep wander off. Now, the sheer mathematics, business-wise of that, don't make sense. That you would expose 99% of your commodity, business-wise, to danger in pursuit of 1%. Any normal business would take annually a loss of 1% easily. Especially if your commodity is a breed that will breed its own kind. So you can replace that one in the next few months when lambing season comes. But that's not the point. Because one matters to Jesus amongst a hundred. One matters. And it tells us something about the heart of Jesus. Who He says that a man who has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? He will leave the 99 others in the wilderness. That's important. Exposed to dangerous predators and environment to go searching for the one that is lost. It's a story. 
It didn't really happen. But he's telling us something. He's saying one in a hundred matters. Jesus would never say to himself, "Ha, ah, it's just one. He says, oh no, it's one. And if there were one person left in Tlethli who was not a follower of Jesus, he wants us to go find in them. And then he tells us about a woman who has 10 silver coins. And um, she's got 10 silver coins and she loses one. And she goes crazy. She turns over the sofa. She pulls up the carpets. She takes everything out of the kitchen cupboards. She looks in the bathroom cabinet. She throws all the duvets off the bed and pulls the mattresses off. She hunts and hunts and nobody can stop her until she finds that one coin. She sweeps, Luke 15, 8 tells us, the entire house and searches carefully until she finds it. What is Jesus saying? One coin in ten matters. So we go from one in a hundred to one in ten matters. So if there were only one person in one family internationally who didn't know Jesus, they matter and he wants to find them. And then he tells the story of the son, the one in two. Who gets lost. He makes some bad decisions. He does things he shouldn't do. It would be so easy for the father to say, I've got another son. So what? I'll consider him lost. I don't know where he is, what he's doing. The father had no idea that he was not just looking after pigs by this stage. He was eating the pig food, having squandered his wealth on wild living. And the son comes back. And I once did a 15-week series in our church, when we lead a church, on this. So you know there's so much here. But one thing I learned was there was a ceremony in the Middle East that the father should have gone through. Because of the shame brought to the father's house in a story like this. When the son returned to the community, he should have taken an empty clay pot. It's called the kazaza. And he should have smashed it at the feet of the son. And culturally, that would have been saying, that's what you are to me. You're done. And banished him from the community. But Jesus tells us, the father doesn't say, hey, I've got another son. But he runs in a way that a patriarch would not have done. He gathers up his flowing garments and he runs to meet his son who's a long way off, and the son doesn't even get to finish his rehearsed speech. Have you ever had a rehearsed speech? I know I've been driving home one time, and I've probably had to say to Amanda, I spent more than I should have spent, you know, and I'm rehearsing my speech just in case. I remember when you were a kid, and you know, you've done something wrong at school, and the teacher's onto you, and you know you can't keep it from your parents, so you rehearse your speech on the way home, ready to tell your parent. And the son doesn't get but the first sentence out of his mouth. And the father covers him. Why? Because one in two matter. And do you see the image of a father who searches for those who are lost? The one who watches out for his lost children to come home. And this is the heart behind the Great Commission. It isn't just something that's huge and big and out there. 
It's here today. It's part of who we are as followers of Jesus. And the words that Jesus used, says here in Matthew 28, Mark records them in the final verses of his gospel in Mark 16. Uh, and he says something slightly different when he says that Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. But what's interesting, we could read that and we could say, well, that is and, and has been used and it's not wrong to a classic headline at a missions conference. You can see it along the back on the, the screens going to all the world and it would really create the environment for an international missions conference. Well, actually, the word, word cosmos in the Greek and in the Greek, it's with a K, not with a C. We understand the word cosmos to think of the universe and the, the, the massive expanses, the, the biggest expanse that we could ever understand. But actually in the Greek, the word cosmos, it meant that. It was a geographical term that talked about lands and talked about um, you know, geographical boundaries. But it also talked about environment. And it also talked about atmosphere. It talked about culture and environment. And I think what Jesus is saying when he says go into all the world is not just go to other nations. Because on other occasions where the word cosmos is used, it says we are not of the world, yet we're in it. And it's talking about an environment, an atmosphere. Don't be children of the world. When I was growing up, we were constantly told you are of the world, you're in the world, but not of it. Don't go to the cinema. Don't go into a pub. Don't go to a football match because that's the world. Do you know what? I saw more of the world in the church than I saw in the world. Because when, G, when, when Paul describes the condition of the world, when he talks about adultery and sin, he also talks about gossip and jealousy and infighting. And sadly, I have to say to you, and, I'm, and we've got four healing ministers in the room, I've seen more of the world in the church, even in the last year, than I've sometimes seen of the world in the world. And that saddens me. But what it tells me is that we cannot somehow isolate ourselves as if we're in this lifeboat constantly bucketing the water out. The reality is that all of us struggle with worldliness because that's just what it means to live in this environment that challenges us every day. The culture that is changing, the things that are so accessible for people to watch that will pollute the way they think and pollute the way they behave. And then we wonder why we see such, such sexual crime in our society when we've seen the sexualisation of our culture and the sexualisation of media. And even on smartphones, what is accessible to 11 and 12 year old kids... And we wonder why our world is the way it will. But it's a world that needs Jesus. So when Jesus says go into all the world, he's not saying book a ticket for Africa. By the way, I love Africa. I've been to going to West Africa next year. I've been to Southern Africa a number of times. It, apart from the UK, it's my favourite continent. It's beautiful. But I want to say today it is about going into the culture and the environment. And not sitting in our lovely castles of church activity without understanding that's where you live. You don't all go to, you haven't all got bedrooms here. This isn't where we live. You go home to your homes and your homes are in streets and you've got neighbours and you go to work and you're working with people who don't know Jesus. You are in the world whether you like it or not. And unless you want to find a cave somewhere in Upper Kumtuch or something, then you've had it. You're in the world. 
Because that's the place we are. So it's the choice about how we live, not whether we live in the world in that way. And you see, this call to go is not necessarily a command to travel. It is, however, a call to live publicly what we have encountered privately. Romans 1.16 in the New International Version, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But in the message paraphrase, it says this, it's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts in him. Church, it's time to go public. To take who we are and what we share here out there. And unfortunately, and it was nobody's fault, it just, I don't know, it's the way it happened. Many of us grew up in an environment that was us and them. It was us, the church, and them, not the church. And I don't believe that Jesus ever imagined an us and them, that we would hide away in here and we'd leave them to it out there. Now, I think Jesus envisioned a church that opened windows and opened doors and we get together we bring the collection of our stories and the blessings of God on our lives this week and we worship and we encourage and we pray for one another because it's been tough and then we go. We go back to where we're living and where we're working. For some of us, our family. I had an opportunity to have lunch this week with my unsaved brother who I haven't seen for many years for a number of reasons. So I want to take the rest of my three hours to, um, to <laughs> I thought you were enjoying it so much, you were smiling, why not? Now I want to tell you, you're okay because I'm booked at Ruby's at half past one, so you're all right. So I've got an hour. No, no, no. I want to give you three bits of advice about going public, okay? Number one, live with your eyes open. Live with your eyes open. Who is already in the circle of your life? What do I mean by the circle of your life? What I mean is we, we all have a circle of life. We all have a perimeter around us that is the life we live. We, in our perimeter is our work and our colleagues. It's our family. It's our friends. It's where we socialise. And sometimes we, we dare to go outside of our perimeter and do something new. But most of us like life in our circle. And our circle gets very comfortable and I'm in the middle of the circle and everything revolves around me and I like my circle. But actually the reality is that the people who often need Jesus are actually in my circle, not outside of it. They're in there. The people I have greatest influence with, they're in my circle already. We sit with them, we talk to them, we text them, we WhatsApp them, we, we like their posts on Facebook and we meet them now and again and sometimes we have meals with them and sometimes we go on holiday with them. Something that we sometimes just don't see that's right in front of our very eyes. It's like the old proverb that says, as non sublimed as those who don't want to see. And sometimes we're closing our eyes to our circle around us. In John chapter 4, um, Jesus talks to his disciples and um, 
I won't go too much into the background for time's sake, but it's, it's on the back of him meeting a woman at a well. And he walks into her circle. And she doesn't realize he knows the story of her circle. She says, let me tell you about your circle. You've had five husbands in your circle. And by the way, the man in your circle now, you're not even married to him. And she says, tell me where I can draw. You talk to me about this water. Tell me where I can draw it. He says, you know, if only you knew who you're talking to. I'm the well you need. And then the disciples come back from going to fetch food. And they're shocked that Jesus is talking to her. Number one, because he's talking to a woman, which a Jewish man would not do. Secondly, he's talking to a Samaritan woman which Jews wouldn't do because he's in Samaria. They don't normally walk that way. They keep away from the Samaritans. And Jesus is in the middle of Samaria, which is the part of the Holy Land, right in the middle, Jerusalem in the south, and Galilee in the north, and he used to walk that route. And whereas other Jews would head across to the Jordan Valley and walk that way so as to not to walk through Samaria, he walked through Samaria. Because Jesus will always walk where other people won't walk. Are we prepared to do that? To walk where others won't walk. And he says this to his disciples. As you look around you now, this is Samaritan land. The Jews didn't want the Samaritans saved. They wanted hellfire and brimstone on the Samaritans. Because 500 years before, when they were invaded by the Assyrians, the Samaritans intermarried with the Assyrians. So they believed that they were polluted blood. They weren't Jewish blood. And he says, as you look around you now, wouldn't you say that in about four months it will be harvest time? I'm telling you to open your eyes and take a good look at what's right in front of you. This is the message version. (laughs) These Samaritan fields are ripe. It's harvest time. Samaritan fields. If Jesus had said this down in Judea or north in Galilee, they'd have accepted it. But he says it in Samaria. He's saying your enemies are your harvest field. Isn't that challenging? The people I don't get on with, they're equally the people Jesus is asking me to look to. And I want to ask you today, are you courageous enough to say, Lord, you open my eyes to who's in my circle? Who is there that I'm overlooking? That I accept the fact. And, you know, we just get, we get used to the world that we're in. We get used to our circle in our, in our circle, from Andrew and I, are a couple called Mandy and Lee. They live opposite us. We live in a little cul-de-sac. We've been neighbours for nearly 23 years since we moved into our house. They were some, some of the, probably the very first people that moved into that house when it was built some years before that. And we interact with them now and again. We've many times prayed for them and once or twice gone over and helped in a bit of a crisis. And just, just, just probably about a year ago now, Mandy's brother died, and she, I heard a knock at the door. We were getting ready, actually. It was September last year, getting ready to go to a function at our church just for all the volunteers, and Amanda's upstairs getting ready because she takes a bit longer than me, you know. <laughs> when you've got it, you don't have to do much with it, really. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was sat just messing around on my iPad doing whatever I'm doing, looking at the football or emails or whatever, and the door goes, and it's Mandy. And she knocks, I say, okay and I could just see she's not because we know and she comes in she sits in our line she just breaks down I call Amanda she'd lost her mum four months before and her brother had suddenly died and she came to ask me would I look after the funeral 
And we sat there and I just felt this divine moment between us, between man to man. It was just amazing. And we just shared the love of Jesus with her. Can we pray with you, we said. Now, she hasn't come to faith yet, but she's in our circle. And then since then, you know, she talks, she was to Amanda, was talking to her recently, and she takes most of the parcels in for our daughter who buys stuff online, thankfully. She's like the royal male in our street, bless her. But she's in our circle. And so I'm reminded this morning that Mandy's in my circle. I mustn't overlook her because we're just used to Mandy and Lee being there and their son who lives at home. She's in our circle. Who's in your circle? Live with open eyes. But the second thing I want to say to you is live with your heart open. Do I really care that my friends and family don't know Christ? I know you do. I'm not wanting to offend you. I know you do. But I still need to ask the question. Because some people don't have the kind of compassion that creates a God-like response. Right at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 9, we read these words talking about Jesus. When he looked over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest. He said to his disciples, how few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. And at that point in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 9 ends. But when the Bible was originally written, Matthew wrote his gospel, he didn't have chapter and verse in there. So we have to look at what verse 1 of chapter 10 says. And verse 1 of chapter 10 tells us that Jesus then called together all his disciples and sent them out in twos. Pray for harvest hands. And now, by the way, show me your hands, boys. These are the harvest hands of sending you out. But it's that compassion. A week ago, this morning, now, I was preaching in the church. Amanda and I go to our home church. And I'm on the teaching team. And I was preaching two services yesterday Sunday morning. And we've been doing a series called Summer School. And encouraged just to take one of the, one of a proverb. And we've, we've set it up a bit like a classroom. So Ellen would have loved it. We've got a chalkboard with our learning lesson. And we just utilise that to teach. And one of the themes they threw out there was the theme of generosity. So I said, I'll do that about generosity. And I spoke, actually, I used the illustration of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And how in the Good Samaritan, there are three, when, the, when somebody sees need, there are three responses. <laughs> There's the response of the robbers who say, what's yours is mine. And they just take. Then there's the response of the religious, the, Pharise- the, 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 the temple priest and the assistant who angle the message says angle to the other side of the road and what they say is what's mine is mine you're not having it but then there is the example again of a Samaritan there it is again whose philosophy is what's mine is yours I'm going to come I'm going to help you I'm going to put, make you right I'm going to put you on my donkey I'm going to take you to the inn we're going to make sure you're well I'm going to pay for that and I'm going to say to the innkeeper look after him And if it costs more than this, when I come back, I'll pay for it. And I was encouraging people. We we, we gave out homework. We were asked by our teaching team, give out homework. And I just encourage people just to think, act and pray. Think this week about an opportunity you could have to be generous to someone. Pray that God would open door of opportunity and then do it. So that's pretty good, isn't it? I thought that was quite good. On Thursday, I think it was, Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember, uh, Wednesday, I was in the centre of Birmingham, I was meeting my brother for lunch, I had a bit of time after and I wanted to get a little, little coat uh, I know, and I, 
I walked all around the shops. I did an impression of my wife and walked around every shop. Because I'm a shopper. When I see it, I buy it. I know that's the little coat I want. That's the one. And I didn't see it. And I, I'm walking back towards my car and I thought I could do with getting home and doing a bit of proper work today or something like that. And, but there's one more shop called Slater's in Birmingham where I go and buy suits often. It's really good. And I thought, I'll go to Slater's because it's on the way to the car park. I'm tired. I've done my steps so I could have a biscuit when I got home. But I'll go to, Ste- I'll go to Slater's. I'll go up this little, go to Slater's and yeah, I found it. It's not this one. It's one back at Mum's. I have this nice little jacket. Bargain. £50 down to 25 Bam. Couldn't miss it. Wouldn't be in trouble. So I thought that's a good deal for me. I come out of Slater's and it's just this little hill down to what we call New Street in Birmingham, the main thoroughfare in Birmingham. And as I come out, there's a guy about five, six yards in front of me. He's clearly a homeless guy. And he's walking on the ball of his right foot. He's clearly got a major problem. He's walking so slow and I'm behind him. And I find myself just slip as if, and I, th- and I took a step into I thought, and in my mind, I thought, no, I am not angling myself to the other side of the road. So I just started to walk. As if I, and it didn't take long before I was almost parallel with him. I was just on his shoulder. And before I got parallel, he just turned around to me. And he said to me, he said, do you have any, have, have any money, you know, for a, a bed for the night and a warm meal? And, I, and I, I didn't have any cash. Isn't it amazing where you can live without cash? I didn't have cash. I said, I don't have any cash, but should I take you up to Pret-a-Manger or to Starbucks? You're hungry. And he said, could you take me to Tesco's? There's a little Tesco's Express, as it were, around the corner on New Street. I said, absolutely. So I took him to Tesco Express and I got a basket and I said, come on, whatever, whatever you want. I just thought I need to do what I ask people to do. So it was interesting because he went for all the things I like. I have a big bottle of, of um, milkshake and then, you know, those nice big trifles you can buy. They're best from Marks and Spencer's, but trifles. <laughs> And he got, and, and, and I said, to, and he got two little, these kind of sweet pots. I thought, me and you could have a great party. And then, and then I said, perhaps, you know, I looked at him. I said, you know, what about a bit of fruit, some apples, bananas? I said, you know, perhaps a bit of vitamins or something. I mean, I'm one to talk, but there you go. <laughs> and so he saw some boxes of grapes. I said, can I, have, I said, of course you can. So I go box of grapes. I said, you know, what else do you want? What else do you need? I really felt by this time I was in the flow of the spirit, you know. What else do you need? And he said, oh, I've got to carry it. That's enough. That's enough. And we started to go back towards the tills. And then I got very close to the tills. He said, can I have another box of grapes? I said, of course you can. Go back and get one. So he got it. Do you know what was really interesting? He said, I'll meet you outside. And he felt very sheepish. And I'd actually thought at one point, if any of the security guards say anything, I'm going to say, he's with me. Because you know what people, when people, homeless people walk into shops, what people think? And he went and he waited right outside. And I paid for this. I went out and I thought, I can't just do this. This is good but it's not enough. So I gave him the bag and I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Anthony. I've got a brother called Anthony. He lives over in the Gower. Amanda and I are going to see him this afternoon, which, for, which touched me in the first instance because my brother Anthony is, is distant from God at the moment. And, um, and I said to him, Anthony, I want to say to you, there is a God that loves you. And my glasses, these are reactor lights. So I had to take them off. And I said, can you look into my eyes, Anthony? There's a God that loves you. And I know you feel broken, but he can make you whole. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. And I said to him, I don't know where you're going. I, I can't kind of be around for where you might be going um, from, from here on. But I want you to go and find a church and walk in and say to them, there's a, a guy told me the other day, 
that I need to find somebody who will tell me how I can find Jesus. And I said, can I pray with you? And as I did, a lovely little lady comes up, little Caribbean lady comes up, and she puts some money in his hand. She said, please, she said, don't use it for drugs. Buy some food. And she saw the bag of food. She said, I said, I've just got him something. And so I'm just going to pray for him. She said, oh, that's good, that's good. And she, she shot off. And I just prayed for him. I want to say to you that sometimes we walk past what Jesus would never have walked past. It's even challenged Amanda. She was in the shops near where one of her clients are and she walked out and saw somebody sitting on there on the side road begging. I was always saying to this to Ellen in another context, but you know, behind every story of brokenness is a story. We often look. Jesus never judged. Jesus didn't walk up to Bartimaeus and said, what have you done? Jesus didn't say to to the, the woman caught in adultery, oh, really? Jesus, no, no, I forgive you, so don't go and sin no more. I want to ask you to live with your hearts open. And the comforting words of the preacher, my last point. I want you to live with your will open. Am I willing, really willing, to be the person who reaches the person who needs to be reached? Some people are not just interested enough to be part of God's answer in the world. I love what um, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. And again, I'm reading from the message because I, I like the way it translates it. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are. And always with the utmost courtesy. You know, that's the best thing. Live the way Jesus asked you to live and people will notice. And sooner or later, if you keep living the way Jesus asked you to live, they want to know why. Amanda went to, to see someone this week and see her, her, her beautician. She doesn't need it. I don't know why she goes. She doesn't need it, but she did. She's known Mary since for about 22, 23 years, or if not, no, if not more, longer than that. And uh, listen to Mary's pains and difficulties. She had a very, very abusive relationship and some awful things happened and thank God she's out of that now and she's met somebody and she's married but she was sharing about a daughter who's really unwell and Amanda just said to her when, when she got home she said you know I just put to her and said Mary can I pray for you and we were just chatting to each other saying you know few people will say no if you show you care it's the beginning of any kind of conversation Having the courage just to say, you know what, can I just pray for you? And Amanda didn't put a hand on her. She was one end of the kind of beauty table and Mary was the other. But just can I pray for you? And Amanda said, I kept it very simple, very clear, but very simple. Just prayed for Mary. I want to ask you today if you're ready to be part of the Great Commission. Not for us to live in isolation, but to engage in the world around us. Everyday moments, everyday conversations and meetings are divine appointments often in what God's doing. Our go may not take us to other lands, but it might take us no further than our home, our workplace, our neighbourhood, our friendship groups, but it's still our opportunity to live out the Great Commission. How amazing that Jesus... Listen to this, folks, before I pray. Jesus... 
invites you and me to come alongside him in his mission to save this world one person at a time. It's like the story of the little boy who's on the beach and loads of starfish have been washed up onto the beach. Hundreds of starfish on the beach and they won't survive and the little boy is going around and he, he's just picking up a fish, starfish here and throwing it back in. And a much older and mature person comes along and says, why are you doing that? It won't make the slightest difference. And he flings one starfish into the sea and said, it's just made a difference for that one. The world is a big, big place. But you know heaven rejoices. Luke 15, three times Jesus says, heaven has a party when one sinner comes to repentance. Let's pray together. Father, somebody took the Great Commission seriously and that's why we are here. Somebody shared Jesus with us. It may have been a parent or a Sunday school teacher but it might have been a colleague, a friend, a neighbour. But somebody is in the line of my story and our story. Help us position ourselves this week that we would say, where you will use us, we'll pray for someone. We'll just share our testimony. We'll invite them to something church is doing that could help them. But we will be part of the great commission of Jesus. Amen.